Hey everyone, this is Sean Cav. Just uh, getting started here with a new episode of the podcast. I want to thank everyone who's been listening and enjoying what we've been doing so far. We have a very cool episode today. Uh, we're featuring a conversation that Kenny and I had with Trevor Extra this past week. Uh, but before we get to that, there's a couple things I wanted to kind of go over with everyone since I have everyone's attention. Uh, we'll get to the sponsors and a few other things. Well, for one, Ireland was amazing for the past week that I've been gone on vacation. Saw so many great landscapes, and the people there are absolutely amazing. If you haven't thought about going, you need to consider it because that is the place to be, especially for just like if uh, if you have any kind of Irish uh, background or anything like that. It's a great place to go and hang out. And if you like to drink, that's definitely the place where you want to be because. You're having whiskey for in your breakfast, and you're having uh, whiskey for lunch with a hot toddy. You're having whiskey for dinner. You're having whiskey just about every time of the day, and just me, like they make it work and everything. All the food there is fantastic, and you have to go and check it out. But okay, moving on from that because I'll actually do a, a separate podcast talking about different experiences I had in Ireland. But until then, I'm trying to get organized. My life's been a little crazy as of lately. A tons of different things happening. Uh, I have tons of gigs lining up as of right now. Uh, like for example, uh, Acoustic Bite Trio were uh, performing this Saturday over at Porter's Pub. That's uh, October 10th and that's from uh, 10 p.m. till around 1.30 or so in the morning. Uh, as for Mike Hop Tours, we're, we have a uh, episode coming up well the trip for the episode coming up where we're going to be traveling down to dc baltimore and fairfax virginia so uh and that's going to be with feature artist matt deliker you can check out his pod uh, his podcast episode where we interviewed him uh, it was a couple episodes ago before we did the kenny's and my my own episodes uh and also another thing i wanted to mention about that was you can expect more episodes like that where it's going to be Kenny and I diving into different subjects as well. We've uh, been coming up with some new ideas for uh, uh, to expand on the podcast besides just doing the these music interviews, which have been great, and we really appreciate the listeners, which has been fantastic. So if you can keep uh, the advertising, word of mouth works great, and also just uh, take your buddy's cell phone and subscribe them to our podcast. If you can get a hold of their phone, uh, you know they have the podcast app on there, whether it's Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, Run. On all of them so definitely check that out but getting back to on subject we have trevor exter today who is a celloist and uh he was explaining like you'll find out more in the actual interview but like just a quick synopsis of what he is it's very experimental sounds coming out of a cello which you would not typically expect but it's almost like a, a rock indie kind of vibe and he really doesn't like to define it so much but like that if i had to put my finger on it that would be kind of where i would place it in the the genre of music plus it's just a such a unique sound and uh, he's got a great soulful voice and whatnot. And uh, besides him being my friend, I also consider him like a musical mentor in a sense because he's got such an ear and you know, it's uh, his story is pretty, pretty uh, interesting as well. So definitely enjoy the conversation that we had with Trevor Exter when uh, we air that in just a moment. And the final thing I want to bring up before I do the sponsors is that November 21st over at Rivals in downtown Easton, uh, Easton PA that is, uh, we have what is called Mike Hop Fest, which is going to be our fundraiser event. That one is going to be ran from 3.30 in the afternoon 
all night. It's going all the way till 2 a.m. We have live music from tons of different artists coming out, and it's going to be absolutely awesome. We have vendors. We have food and drink specials. Uh, everything is uh, being donated, which has been uh, fantastic for us. We really appreciate everything that everyone's been uh, contributing for us uh, to help with the web series and the podcast. So if you can make it out that way, it's only $5 at the door. And that's uh, re-entry and everything is all included, of course. Uh, come in, enjoy. There's going to be the School of Rock who's performing. Uh, that's going to be, oh, the Bank Street Band from the School of Rock. So these are uh, younger children coming up and they're uh, playing covers. And uh, they're absolutely phenomenal. I saw them perform a couple years ago at the Music for the Market. So you definitely want to check that out. Okay, and then we also have uh, Roy and the Secret People. Uh, if you haven't checked out them, go to RoyandTheSecretPeople.com. They have awesome rock music, and uh, Mike Roy is a good friend of ours as well. Carter Lansing's going to have one of his projects performing. Michael Duck's going to be there, uh, a.k.a. Not for Coltrane. And then also uh, Tennessee Brian, uh, Brian Preston, if you know if you know him in the area. He's going to be performing. Uh, I think there's a, a couple other people. Of course, uh, Blue Hearts Revelry. Uh, there's a couple other things we're nailing down. But as things become more and more concreted there's going to be more details we're going to keep advertising this event and we're going to keep pushing to get as many people out as possible so be sure to put that onto your calendar and mark it down for november 21st from 3 30 till 2 a.m there's going to be a cover at the door from 3 30 to about 10 30 p.m and now we're going to go ahead and oh that's right i still have to do the, the sponsors so uh we have celtic hammer club and that's uh our clothing line that sponsors us you can visit celtichammerclub.com order yourself some awesome celtic design t-shirts and you can like them on facebook as well it's just search on facebook you'll find them and then also we have dark horse strings you can visit darkhorsestrings.com order yourself a great set of guitar and or bass strings uh they have fantastic tone i use them on all my basses kenny has them on his guitars and we absolutely love them so we know you'll love them as well okay let's air the conversation with trevor exter you're listening to mike hopcast with your host sean cav and kenny mays it's like shakedown town but you know there's ways we find our ways it's not like we're all rolling in it over here it's not new york city right (laughs) right So I guess we'll kind of get started a little bit here with uh, some of the, the, the dialogue with the, the music, the music dialogue. Oh, yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to talk about some of that today. We're talking about what we came to talk about. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we all we know, we know your name already, but why don't you just kind of give us a, a quick synopsis of what it is that you do before we kind of get started? Well, uh, I, I play the cello. Uh, I sing I play bass guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, that's the thing I've been doing the least amount of time, mm-hmm. but um, and I do some teaching, uh, and and I just get hired for stuff. Like I, really? I do my I do my songwriting thing. I do the original music. I have a wedding band, and I try and vibe out on the right stuff. And, right. So let's kind of what we typically do is we start from like the beginning a little bit, and just kind of like see. What was like the interest where it started with music and then kind of like developed into like what it is that you do now a little bit. So kind of going back to your probably youngest memory of like doing music. (laughs) Well, uh, I used to sneak up on the piano. There was a piano in the house Mm -hmm. 
that nobody. Where were you living though? Uh, Newfield. Newfield. New York. Okay. Which has kind of been the sticks outside of Ithaca, mm -hmm. and yeah, my my parents met at Cornell, and then they they uh, they moved out to the country, and they were they were sort of doing like my mom's a school teacher, and my dad was a sociologist, so he had a job teaching it in the prison. He would oh. he would drive forty minutes to 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 teach at Corning Prison, okay, and and then. You know, my mom would teach elementary school, um, so that was kind of the the rundown. And then there was a piano in the house, and I would, I think it was like a hand-me-down, and so there was this piano, and I would run up to it and just like make that thing. Yeah, just make make some noise. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would bang on the piano, so that was that came back later when I was thirteen. Like I, I. I started playing piano pretty seriously starting in eighth grade. Mm. Um, and I had, I had like Suzuki cello from age seven. Uh, How'd you get that one? That was, that, that's contended because I don't remember wanting to do it. Mm. And my mother insists that I was not going to give her a break until we found a cello teacher. Like I was just like, I want to play cello. Come on, come on, let <laughs> me do it. Yeah. She was like, I was begging and begging and screaming. And um, so we found a teacher, but um, my recollection is that it was just a thing that kind of happened. I wasn't that excited about it. Um, so uh, the cello was never an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an albatross or an ostrich. <laughs> it's not, it's a very awkward instrument, especially when you're a kid, like carrying it around and stuff. So it was one of those things that I, you know, I, I don't remember having much fun with it, but I did have a really great teacher um, who was really sort of, we, we gelled on a personal level. So like she just, we had the same sense of humor, so we would laugh a lot. And, and that was a really, like she was, as a person, she was a really positive influence on me and kind of got me going on the cello because um, it was just like we had a, we had a fun time mm -hmm. um, and then you know I kept it up and it, at some point I, I sort of got into this like feedback loop with myself of like I don't want to do this uh, but I've been doing it so long I don't want to waste the energy I put into it already so if I quit that's like a bummer did you ever get that, that weird feeling? Because like, um, it's a classical instrument. Yeah. It's a classical instrument. So it was like a little bit of like a stigma about that, where like kind of the the approach and like yeah, I, I want to rather do something that like was more like approved by like my, my peers, something like that. Like, well, I, any, like, like, no, no. I, I mean, I, I I wasn't really that outgoing socially, so it wasn't okay. like I cared what people liked. Okay. I did I did a lot of um, just goofing off. I mean, as a kid, you know, kids, kids are kids. So, uh, um, but I, I never really was passionate about music until I had this uh, social studies teacher in in eighth grade who offered an elective of jazz piano, mm. and he he taught me how to play the blues. He taught us how to play like superstition and things like that, and 
that was when like jamming out on the piano first really kind of grabbed me as like a thing I wanted to do more of mm -hmm. um, or do do period you know so I started really just grabbing the piano every chance I could starting around you know 12 13 and um, that was kind of a kind of a fluke like I was literally like filling a hole in the class schedule and this jazz piano class was available to take and I needed you know, I was like, well, I'll do this. <laughs> so yeah. I, so I enrolled in the jazz piano class and, um, and it was super awesome. Yeah. Super fun. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so you're kind of, you're doing lessons with the cello, you're playing jazz piano and that's like an elective course for you. Uh, when did kind of like songwriting kind of take a an initiative for you? Like, I don't know. I mean, I was always kind of moody. Okay. But uh, writing actual songs took a really long time for me to start doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't even really consider myself a songwriter, mm -hmm. per se. Like, for me, the writing of the songs is like creating a vehicle to play in. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you got to create a reason to be on stage, and you have to when you show up on stage you don't want to waste people's time so you want to like have words and music that are worth listening to a stack of things to say or like a whole story i'm telling musically okay. like i'm more about creating an experience like a, I, i'm really into the resonance of the cello and like the richness of a sound like a, a band that's really tight so if i'm having that experience on a physical level uh, I'm, I'm happy. So it's like, you know, for me to play weddings with my wedding band, it's like, we'll get, a, we'll get the rig set up. We'll get our thing get the right people on there. People are there with a good attitude and it's like, let's go, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm happy. It's like taking a bath, you know, when the sound is just like in you like that. Um, and then when I, when I get up and do the, the whole Trevor Exter show, if I'm doing like my original songs, that's, I mean, it's really validating on one level that, that people come out and listen to that. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing where I feel a little bit self-conscious on top of just wanting to play. But my real reason to be there is the same. It's like I just want to play and connect. Yeah, it's sharing um, a little bit of yourself. I guess, yeah. Comes down to it. Yeah. But for you, it's more about the performance than it is about having something to say with the songs. It's more about saying? the immersion than the okay. performance. Like the, the performance is like... The person performing is the one structuring the experience. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'll get up there because I have a certain experience I want to have and provide. So I kind of have to be the one performing in order to structure the experience right. Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's not about like showing off so much as it is like, let's do this thing. Like I have a, a vision that's like a, a sensation mm -hmm. I want to create. Um, and you just try and you try and involve people in that and get the energy going. And you know, I, I think resonance is the key word. Like you create a sound, um, or the sound comes out of the object. You know, it's like you don't even you channel the sound more than anything. And when that sound bounces off the inside of the instrument, then it, you, know, you can hear it. Maybe it'll go out a wire into some speakers. You get, you create a sound in the room, and then when that sound reaches people like if the meaning or the the quality of the sound you know 
you can feel someone like the audience's heart reverberating back and that creates a larger resonance. So the whole paradigm of having a performer in an audience uh, is a way of getting a group of people to resonate in the same way. Um, but it doesn't always require a performer. Like, you know, you go down to Brazil and you have samba in the streets and, you know, there might be a token person leading the sing-along, but that person isn't the show. You know, mm -hmm. the show is everybody doing it. You know, same thing with, like, Pete Seeger comes to mind. You know, mm -hmm. he did, like, the Carnegie Hall show back in the 50s, you know. And it's like he's got this really rich voice and he's technically performing at Carnegie Hall as an artist, but he spends most of his time getting the audience to sing along with him. Uh, and that's the beauty of that experience. You know, you hear this amazing sound in the room. Pete's guiding it more than he is performing it, you know. So that's that's kind of my philosophy. Like, I'm trying to channel things and, and, and guide things more yeah. than I am. Guide a group experience more than you are trying to just be yeah. out there. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what I got from it, too, where it's more like um, just having something to deliver as, as a whole rather than like you being the front man like the Trevor Exter band or anything like that it's yeah. more just like it's the whole group having something dynamic to deliver to the audience and like everybody kind of getting in on it yeah yeah I mean when I was younger it was like I had kind of a lower self-esteem and it was like I needed the validation from a crowd I needed to have like more positive feedback uh, you know trying to like get girls and stuff like there are there are other you know, there's more shallow reasons to, to do it. Um, but, you know, you kind of, those, those, all of those goals are really easy to reach. And a lot of folks, they kind of peek out, you know, like dudes get into high school or college, they'll win the battle of the bands and do their thing and <laughs> do their jam band or bar band thing and they'll get through and they'll start getting laid and they'll start realizing that there's really not that much money in music. I don't care what anybody says, you know. And so they like they want to be grown-ups and make a real living. So they kind of don't do music anymore once they've sort of gone through a phase. Um, and if that's all it is for you, then yeah, probably you're going to peek out and not keep doing it. But then there's others of us <laughs> who are like, no, this is actually a lifelong fascination. And it's like, I don't care if there's less money or whatever. It's more like... It's a lifestyle, really, when it comes down to Yeah. It. You know, it's like I relate to my, my climber friends and my athlete friends and my dancer friends. And, you know, there's like a... It's 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 a commitment to ha to to certain experiences, you know. Mm. Um, there's something really glorious about that, you know. So it's really once once you once you've had like the taste of validation and like that side gets pretty boring, you know. You don't really need it validation anymore. Or even just to keep the validation coming with um, constant like uh, a praise and acceptance, basically like. Uh, like if you go from like one solid like album, like if you put out like a really great album, and then like it goes to the next, you have to keep keep it coming in that sense. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really bad at that. <laughs> I'm, every aspect of the public side of what I do, I really feel very, very bad at that. Like um, marketing, promotion, um, uh, email, like I, I. I mean, when it's all done, I like I like the result, <laughs> but the actual uh, bringing the music to the world is just that's such a chore for me. Like mm -hmm. I, I want to make it. I do my best to like preserve it in recorded form, but mm -hmm. um, and then getting it out. And by the time the record is heard by the public, I'm so done <laughs> with the yeah. music. Um, but then there's another process that takes hold, which is like doing the shows and mm -hmm. that. And, doing the live performances um, of said songs 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't been doing any of that lately. I've mostly just been doing the teaching and doing the weddings. Mm -hmm. Doing, uh, I still write regularly with a songwriting partner, mm -hmm. and she and I, she and I have been been um, working together for a few years, and we're kind of hoarding songs right now. Oh, yeah. Like we're, uh, you know, and this is this is my initiative, but but she went along with it. Like we just wanted to have a stack of songs before we entered into another production phase. Okay. Um, so, you know, her name is Jill Fruitkin and we wrote my last album. Yeah, don't be um, afraid to plug anything either. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, like <laughs> well, the album came out two years ago. It's called Rome. It's available mm -hmm. on my site and it's wonderful. Um, and when I started writing with Jill, it was interesting. Um, uh, you know, I, I was kind of like lost, like I had really bad sort of writer's block. So creatively, I was sort of at a standstill. Um, and I knew that she was uh, a writer, and I knew that she was a, a fan of music, and you know, she's definitely done a lot of performing and, and theatrical creation and writing. So she's you know, very creative on a lot of different angles, um, but she doesn't consider herself a songwriter, or at least at the time that we started working, she didn't. Okay. Um, and I was this guy who you know, had a lot, too many musical ideas, I had a really strong vibe and vision for what I was doing, but I didn't have like a lot of words coming into my head. I basically said everything I had to say. I just wanted to play, uh, but I didn't feel that confident to like go out with only music. Mm -hmm. um, and we were just having this conversation and, and we just uh, kind of on a whim started trading ideas. <clears throat> she, she threw some words to me and I had some other words and kind of patched together I think I think we had three songs before we really it occurred to us to actually take it seriously oh really it was kind of fun at first kind of get together and jam yeah yeah things. like the songs sort of happened you know I wouldn't say they happened by accident but there was just kind of a random inspiration that created organically this. definitely organically but then it was um I played the songs for a couple of friends you know, just like, oh, these are the new songs, or this is a, a new song, you know. You got people around who will listen to some new songs. Hey, I got a new song. Oh, let me hear it. You play it for them. And the guy's like, wow. I'm like, yeah, I wrote it with, I wrote it with somebody, you know. And they're like, oh, that's interesting, because it sounds totally like a Trevor Extra song, but way better. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of different people said that. It's like a backhanded compliment, or it's like... Thanks. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't mind because I'm I totally tired of like just straight Trevor. Well, you said you were having like writer's block, so it just kind of makes yeah. sense. I was like, hey, you know what? I appreciate that. Well, it wasn't just writer's block. Like I'm sort of bored with what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Like like it's one thing to be unable to write and it's another thing to be like, well, I don't really feel like I've got anything to offer. Like mm -hmm. deeper than writer's block, it was like, I don't care what I have to say, so why should they? <laughs> why should I get people together in a room to hear what I have to say in a musical context? Um, and, uh, but what I do have is this drive to shape sound you know, artistically, you know, like paint, you know, use different colors of sound and you know, work with different grooves and arrangements and, and layers like that. Um, and Jill has a very similar kind of parallel approach with words. 
where the way she works with vowels and the sounds of words and you know the meaning and the multiple layers of what lyrics mean mm -hmm. you know she has a real uh, kind of very passionate connection to the words and the way she relates to to words okay. so she and i connect on the level like uh, like we we kind of work in two different worlds but in the same way so um we started writing songs on purpose and you know it, it it took us a while to settle into our routine but now we basically get together you know at regular intervals and we write you know with intention usually Usually we'll have a song finished by the end of a session. Hmm. Um, so we just kind of started doing that. Not that you're giving yourselves deadlines, but it's more just like... It's kind Not of, deadlines, just, but yeah. I mean, I, I decided that I wanted to have 30 songs before we moved forward with any other production. Mm -hmm. um, just because production and promotion and doing an actual project for the public, like I said, for me, it's a really intimidating process. It's very work intensive, and it kind of it definitely takes me out of the generative creative mindset whereas like I can't really write new songs while I'm in the middle of making an album or doing a tour I just don't when I'm doing those things I'm doing that elsewhere. thing I don't know I don't know a lot of people who can yeah I can I can basically do one thing at a time so the focus gets so spread out so thin when it comes to like either traveling or promotion anything yeah. like that and of course none of it's cheap yeah. So it all comes down to money and time. Yeah. And if you don't have much of either one of those to work with, then like it becomes very difficult to be creative. That's the way I, my experience with it as well. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I definitely like, I, I struggle with keeping my focus just to do the one thing at all. So, mm -hmm. and I also I, I I realize like I, I mean, if I'm inspired or motivated with you know survival reasons, I'm good at getting stuff done, but. Um, I, I'm I run out of energy quickly. With well, you you've had a lot of success uh, lately with like the the Facebook videos you've been oh. posting and stuff like that, right? Like yeah, you've been getting a lot a lot of yeah. like, views and stuff like that for that kind of stuff. Yeah, is, I'm psyched about that. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. I'm doing that as a series. I'm going to try and keep it like in an ongoing series. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, I've got I've got a stack of them kind of in the pipeline, and, yeah. and we're we're working on more. It's a it's a good a good situation and I just you know like that those are specifically cover songs like mm -hmm. I, I pick songs that I really love and I play them on the cello and it's just like spotlighting that approach for me is what's important like I want to you know that's kind of also why I started a wedding band like I wanted to have gigs as a singing cello guy and those gigs aren't out there unless you make them mm -hmm. um, but anyone who's out there gigging usually started out on the wedding circuit I realized after making seven albums and hundreds of thousands of miles of touring that I had never really put in like the early miles in the wedding band to really get my chops and my repertoire built up mm -hmm. so I kind of passed go Okay. Yeah, Before you even started. And, yeah. So I, I went back around. I was like, you know, let's do. Let's. I want to be able to say that I did the wedding thing, and and mm -hmm. and you know, there's like a spiritual intent to doing weddings as you well. You can't deny like like the 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 wedding market for like bands stuff like that. Like it's good money being being in a wedding band, but at the same time, it's like. Um, there's a stigma about it for with musicians where they're just kind of like, oh, I don't want to go that route. That's selling out or whatever that, but eh, not really. Uh, it's it's, more, it's, for, for me, it's more of a blue collar thing. Like mm -hmm. you do it, it's a job, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's, I like feeling useful. 
oh, yeah. providing a service. It's really easy for me to just like float off into Flake City and be like, yeah, I'm a cello guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> improvising and doing like, you know, cool shit on the cello. And, you know, but yeah, but what's your job? You know, and right. I really like for me, the rebellious innovation is to make that my actual job. Mm-hmm. Um, because anyone can mess around on anything and do it. You know, it's like, well, I, I am messing around quite a bit, but I can also provide a vital service for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that helped ground me uh, as an artist. Like, doing weddings, I think everybody should do it, um, at least for a time. Um, because it, it, it'll just, it'll put you in touch with just the core realities of what, what your job is as a musician. And it doesn't mean you, you can't also be creative and inspired, but on some level, people need you to provide them with an essential musical experience. Yeah, and, I'll agree with you on that. And you want, and, and it's like you, you have the skills, so why not put them to use in service of something greater than yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, or greater than your own experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, plug you plug you real quick. The fact that uh, uh, you actually played my wedding, <laughs> we did. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually coming up on a year uh, yeah. on the fourth. So like that 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 was kind of something that I thought about as well. It's like, like a year ago, it was like a yearly meeting now. Oh right. But, yeah. So like uh, you're gonna I you performed at my wedding. You had your wedding band there. That was you guys just kind of first started forming and like. Right. Yeah, was, well, was the very beginning we we had started. done we had done a number of gigs um, prior to that, like okay. during during between the time you booked us right. and the time that we played, because you got us like a year in advance, which was smart because we ended up getting a bunch more gigs after that and filling out the calendar. It literally, so. it came up like uh, just a thought. We were actually on vacation in Florida at the time, and we're like. Oh well, we should really try and think of a band that we would want to get. And like, I remember uh, when you were playing with John Kimmock uh, with the XBSK, you were playing a reporters. Uh, we got to talking before, and then uh, I thought, like, well, what about those guys? That'd be kind of interesting because we were trying to keep it as very like yeah. blue collar and very um, like minimalist for like a wedding as possible. So we wanted to kind of just keep it. That was a that, great time. That theme. Really. Oh yeah, yeah it was it fantastic. Was, and yeah. actually, I'll say like, like the family and all the friends and like everybody that was invited. Uh, had a fantastic time. They loved the band and whatnot. Mm. So like, that was definitely like uh, you left an impression when it came to the cello because none of them thought the same. Like I had heard some of their opinions before and then after. Like, okay. why is this guy bringing a cello up there? Is it what? There's two basses? Is that, is that what's happening in this band? Sean likes bass, so we're gonna have two basses. Yep. <laughs> but, and yep. then, uh, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't put that past you to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So I mean, like it was one of those things where uh, people thought that I was like, oh, and there was another thing. I was like, are people gonna be able to dance to this? And then, did you see the? The Victor Wooten. Sorry, I didn't. Mean no, no, that. it's fine. Like, uh, I'll just, I'll just finish up. Then, yeah. like, everybody, everybody danced. Like, they, like, everybody was having a great time, and uh, they, they were like, oh, the cello is kind of like the guitar, I suppose. And then, like, everyone kind of picked it up. That, like, yeah, it's like a trio, but it's like they're, it's a full sound. Like, it's a, it's a full dynamic. And you're saying with the Victor Wooten? Well, I mean, when, it, when people ask me what I do with the cello, like I say, I'm a professional cellist, and then. And I go, it's not really what you think, though. Like, what I really do is I treat it like a, like some kind of hybrid between the like a stand-up rockabilly bass mm-hmm. and a ukulele. So I call it like the fretless baritone ukulele. <laughs> fretless baritone ukulele. It kind of um, fits. 
No, f- from my perspective, it fits. But that's just like if you got to make a quick snapshot of it mm-hmm. without being able to demonstrate it. Um, but Vic- Victor Wooten, we we opened for him at the Music Fest Cafe, like mm-hmm. that giant place at Steel Stacks. And right. It was Jimmy Herring, the blues band, a guy from... Was it Victor Wood or was it Stanley Clark? Because I thought Stanley Clark played there. Oh, he did too, but this was years ago. Oh, okay. So we played, we, we, like we were the opener, and then the, the the middle was Jimmy Herring, and then Vic was the the, the headliner. Mm-hmm. And his this band, I forget what it was called, but it was it was a drummer, keyboard, four six string basses. Wow. Or not not six, but it was like four basses was the band. It was all bass. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, this is a guy who can do whatever he wants. And he went for it. It's like, I'm going to make a band that's all basses. Well, that's like the, was it the SMV where it was like Stanley Clark, Marcus Miller, and Victor Wooten. Like the three of them. Like, like, oh, like, yeah. Like, uh, Trace this ba- wasn't that. Trace Bajos when they, they, they yeah. do that group. But that, that's, that's I've never seen that. Yeah, yeah, we're doing bass talk now. Yeah, yeah, you catch on to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured that out. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I can barely play the bass. I like it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely like um, I, I notice a lot of it with your playing, though. Like where you throw the harmonics in there, and like you have more like um, the the blues based kind of playing, but like the soulful singing kind of side of it. It's it's a it's a unique dynamic I've come across. Like going out and seeing people performing and whatnot, you do stick out amongst like the crowd mm. which is a it's, it's a compliment oh thanks yeah, you're welcome thank you <laughs> <laughs> thanks yeah. well i um the thing that fuels my approach is is the time i spent living in brazil like mm. that that was it because um, that that was where you get like the the sound or the image i'm going to say like the sonic image mm. of just like a single voice and a guitar uh playing really intimately Mm-hmm. Um, so like that quiet uh, bossa nova right. vibe um, and like that style interestingly enough first hit the market at the same the same year that Miles put out Kinda Blue okay um, and there was this interesting sort of reverse I'm gonna throw some big musical stereo it didn't really happen like this but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stereotypically uh, the pop, uh, the popular music in America was comparatively more unified before 1959, mm-hmm. where it was show tunes and the jazz standards were adapted from Broadway show mm-hmm. tunes. And it was all like there was a similar body of work that was fueling all these different kinds of music, like the swing era and jazz. Right. Uh, and then bebop was percolating and then starting in 59 there's two things happened in 59 you had you know Chuck Berry like Johnny B Good came out in 59 and kind of blue came out in 59 and then music kind of split into these camps where the more imaginative exploratory improvisatory you know quote unquote sophisticated evolutionary-minded musicians kind of took off with jazz Mm -hmm. and rock and roll became rock and roll and that was like the much more you know in your face thing yeah your your standard like progression and it was it was more simplistic 
uh, in in a very good way. I love it. But um, you know, so those the the, the, the tree kind of you know, branched off in those two directions, two general directions. You know, uh, but in Brazil, you had a lot of different camps. You had like traditional samba. You had you had folk music. You had people that were you know, into more sophisticated, like imported forms of music, like the stuff from Europe and the States. And you had people were fascinated by jazz. And then you had like these totally street forms of samba. And when, when, when Bossa Nova hit, uh, like specifically like Jean Gilberto's record, Chega de Saudade, which was the first Bossa Nova single, came out in 1959. Mm -hmm. And it, what it did was it unified all of these totally disparate styles that were not really commingling in the culture. They were there, but they weren't really related to each other. And these things all kind of came into this one brand new sound that this guy made, which is one guy on the guitar, but he was playing those rhythms with his fingers. And it was a very disciplined rhythmic approach he had on the guitar, you know, it was like that the specific like rhythmic cells of samba were like present and you know there it wasn't just strumming the guitar you know oh yeah no, um, like so and anything like, yeah or if you play like a rhomba on the guitar it's like boom, bah, 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 yeah boom, totally different thing so it was very specifically brazilian and it was but it was also very sophisticated like the composition was using you know complex harmonies and the through composed the melody all that uh forms that were imported from other styles and it kind of created this new unique very unified thing. And then ever since then in Brazil, you go to the record stores and there's MPB, which is the genre of, uh, it's called Musica Popular Brasileira, Brazilian popular music. Started with that and then went into all of these different um, movements, like the Tropicalia movement and you know this, all these different kinds of, of Brazilian popular music, which are all sold in the same section of the record store. And um, like there were different camps, but it was all very kind of Brazilian. Um, and I should say also like, you know, because of the military dictatorship that, that happened, you know, starting in the early 60s, you know, Brazil really needed to come together culturally just to hang together because all this shit was going on, you know, with oppression. Um, so, I mean, that's like the, the dime store history of those things. So like I was attracted to Brazilian music as a teenager. Um, <coughs> You know, specifically because there was like a, a, a there was a, like a unique self-contained identity in that sound, mm -hmm. and I was like, "What's up with that?" So I actually moved to Brazil and be, almost be, I didn't become Brazilian, but I learned port I, I learned to blend in well enough that some people thought I was Brazilian. I stayed there for a year and a half. I learned the language like a musician would learn it. You know, listening to every little inflection, and um, I learned. Brazilian songs. I learned how to play them on the guitar. I still know a few of them, but um, I actually went through this phase about five years where all I cared about and listened to was Brazilian music. Hmm. Basically, that and a little bit of Stevie Wonder, a little bit of Joni Mitchell, and then a lot of Jeff Buckley. When I finally heard it. Jeff is who brought me back to the states. Okay. But um, yeah, that whole thing of just like uh, playing simply. Uh, was was really important for me, so that that drives me to this day is just trying to kind of reduce it to the bare elements. I'm not trying to do anything flashy, you know. I just want to put the song out there. I I literally fell in love with Brazilian music and found my way there when I was 20 years old or 19. Um, I was you know I was going to 
the college wasn't nearly as expensive back then. I was paying out-of-state tuition at the University of Wisconsin, which it was like a quarter what it is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I went, I got through first couple of semesters at Wisconsin, and it's just so damn cold out there. Uh, I couldn't stand the cold. So I started thinking about how can I get out of here. And uh, so I went into the year abroad program so that's what took me to Brazil. And as soon as I got to Brazil, I dropped out of school. Just <laughs> never leaving. Um, yeah. Well, it was like the school wasn't really working for me. And uh, I'm a bad student and just not into it. Mm. Um, but, but Brazil definitely was. And I was meeting musicians. I was hanging out. So I was like integrating into the scene. They were, they were happy to have me, like cello guy. Oh, yeah, I play cello on my thing. And so I, was playing a, I was playing a lot of gigs for the first time, you know, just getting to be on stage. And I ended up moving to a different town. I wasn't living in Sao Paulo anymore. I moved to Campinas, and I just lived on a block full of musicians. And it was just music straight up the whole time. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was it. Okay, so you were there, uh, was this like the, your first time kind of like performing live, like when you were down in Brazil, or were you performing before that? Because you said you moved down there when you were like 19, 20, right? Yeah. So uh, were you gigging before that? I mean, I was a musician before that. True. Uh, but, you know, in, in classical music school, they it's have... Yeah, like you do recitals and then you play in the orchestra and you play chamber music. Like I'd been on stage. Okay. Like when I was in high school, I was in the, the musical. When I was a junior, I you know, sang some little walk-on parts in the high school musical. So like, it's not like I hadn't been on stage before. We, mm -hmm. we did the Battle of the Bands and all that stuff. But, um, and it still took me 10 more years to, to step out as a solo performer. Mm -hmm. Like that didn't happen until 10 years later. Okay, I gotcha. But, you know, just getting on stage with bands and, you know, bouncing it back and forth with people, um, that was like getting my feet wet. I did a lot of those. And, you know, people, like I said, people hire you as a cello player, mm -hmm. you know. The, the bassists have to be pros. Mm -hmm. So for me to get a job as a bass player, I would have had to be a lot better than I was. Um, but you could, you could make a lot more mistakes on cello <laughs> and keep the gig. You know, the bass player fucks up, he's out the door. <laughs> but the cello player can, you know, as ornamentation is like, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like um, an added feature for the band. So yeah. They loved it. Yeah, Whatever I mean, none, none, none of us are getting paid, you know. <laughs> just might as well play. So then from Brazil, um, did you move You moved back to the States or was there any other kind of like locations you stopped in before you made it back to well, the States? Well, I, I went back to Wisconsin and I finished the degree. I still dropped out another two times after that, okay. but I, I slithered away with a degree. And then after a couple of years of that, I moved to New York City and started trying to make it work here, um, okay. which I flunked out of here twice, too. This is <laughs> my third time moving to New York. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were here in New York, is, is, um, was there a lot of like solo work for you? Did you kind of like start off with that? Like, or you just Same kind of thing, planning in restaurants. Yeah, you know, just kind of like, have to dig your nails into whatever you can. Yeah, well, um, I guess I've always been challenged trying to like, there's, there's some folks who are just like too talented and they just get tons of gigs all the time. I'm not one of those guys. Like I, I'll get some 
choice random gigs. Mm -hmm. Like I was basically homeless in New York for the first nine months and then I stumbled into this gig called De La Guarda mm -hmm. uh, and they, they put me on stage the first and this show is blowing it was an off-broadway show and they needed it wasn't a play though it was like a like an experience kind of like stomp or blue man group okay um and kind of in that genre people flying around on ropes totally amazing rock star shit and they needed a musician and they didn't know where to find a musician i happened to know a guy who knew a guy who knew they were looking i walk into the audition and it was one of those things where like for the, the physical performers, they had a cattle call and they had like 800 people show up for the audition and they had a hard time choosing mm -hmm. the right people out of a massive, you know, group. And there was a job for a musician as well and they did not have like the channel to find music. So I, I go to the music audition and there's like eight other guys there and only one of them can do the the besides me only one of them could even execute the part they needed so i show up i'm like oh yeah i can drum and sing this thing oh yeah sure and it was me and this other guy and they didn't really like either of us that much <laughs> um, i'm actually still friends with that guy okay. um but uh but yeah they, they gave me the gig and I, I i took that job and for the next three years i had this amazing off-broadway show so it's like sleeping on couches for nine months and then I had an apartment and health benefits and a salary and I just kind of rode that into the sunset well oh, yeah we went on Letterman like literally a, a year to the day after I moved to New York we went on the Letterman show and I was like I made it and I'm like a star <laughs> and totally spiraled downward after that into like you know drug addiction and homelessness and like just mm -hmm. not like it I I didn't, I still have a hard time doing like the hustle. It's really, um, like I, so anyway, that whole thing, like I, I've gotten very, very lucky at the right time. You know, same thing like, you know, later hooking up with, you know, John and Steve, mm -hmm. uh, the Kimox. Right. You know, that was like a godsend to meet those guys and to start working with okay. them. Uh, that was many years later. Mm -hmm. um, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been stumbling through this the whole time. So. Oh, with the podcast or no, no, my my life. Oh, your life, your yeah, life. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a much deeper. I can I can ramble at length about all the wrong turns I've taken. <laughs> so. Well, it's whatever you want to yeah. really cover with this as well. So I mean, uh, let's let's kind of let's dive into that then. Let's go right right into like the the XBSK uh, type stuff. So you met up with uh, John Kimock. And uh, did you did you uh, first meet up with his dad? Like, or? no, no, I met I met his dad through John. I was never a follower of of I didn't know who Steve was. Okay, uh, but this kid John um, was coming to the gigs I played in Bethlehem, mm -hmm. and it came through numerous times, and he was there, uh, you know, still in high school. Um, and like the, the owner of the cafe, Michelle, kept saying, "You got to play with this kid, John." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." Sure, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I was always in a hurry every time I went through there. So it took like a couple of years for us to actually get into a jam session together. And I realized, right. whoa, this kid like blazes on the drums <laughs> in an unbelievable way. And he's only like 15 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was aware from that point that there's definitely like talent to pay attention to. And, you know, you want to play with different people here and there but I really wasn't working with drummers 
Okay. Um, uh, I didn't really have the confidence or the, the know-how to work with drummers. Um, so, yeah, another couple of years went by, and then I was like, man, it would be really cool <laughs> <laughs> to play with a drummer. And that coincided with in a gig in Bethlehem, and uh, Kim Ock was there, and we started just playing kind of casually. And then I was like, let's get together and play on purpose. Were you living in the Lehigh Valley at that time? The kind of I was like... still living in, in New York. Oh, you're in New York. Yeah. You were traveling down to like Bethlehem for those gigs. Yeah, I would go to Bethlehem. Yeah. And uh, so it's uh, one day, I mean, this is all kind of a blur now, but he came to New York and I rented us a playing space in Astoria. Okay. In Queens. And just for us to go and play. Yeah. And uh, I swear, my fingers were bleeding. After about 10 minutes playing together, we stopped and I just looked at my hands and it was just like Game of Thrones. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just like the, the shredding that happened. Like it was just, and both, neither of us could really contain it. It was just like, blah, blah. It was totally tribal, totally new much more powerful sounding stuff than I'd ever done, you know, just as like solo cello guy. Uh, and this was like a much more um, energized way to play. I, I ran out of ideas of what to play, but I settled on these much more simple, much less ornamented mm -hmm. stuff. And I realized, wow, I really want to play with this guy a lot. So we started, we started steering towards playing more together and then we made a demo and we started trying to make a band uh but it was really just the two of us mm -hmm. um and we had we had some friends like you know matt mulchaney recorded the thing with us and okay. helped us helped us do it but um uh yeah i mean i guess around the same time was when the housing crisis happened and the economy bottomed out right so i was back in new york living in east harlem around the time this was happening yeah that's right <laughs> um and the stock market crashed and i got fired from all three of my part-time jobs oh wow from the same day so oh my god <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't get fired. I mean, I, they just they laid everybody off. Yeah, they off. just they can't, they can't <coughs> so, afford to have all the employees. So. Yeah, so I was I was kind of doing my thing, like doing the music thing and 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 working here and there. Yeah, were you trying to like and, bust to like make extra cash, or was like busking never like a? I busked thing? a little bit a little actually. Bit. I I even got on TV for busking once. Um, hmm. But but the. Um, the gigging scene was pretty piecemeal. It's not like I could depend right. on that for rent. Did the occasional gig, yes, uh, but mostly you know putting on a suit and passing out name tags and saying yes sir and catering and right. typing, you know, temp stuff, whatever. Right. Uh, I I was I was doing a temp gig at an office. I was doing catering for like uh, the financial industry. Interesting, right. and then I was going part-time to this guy's house and scanning a photo collection. He had a large collection of old photographs. Sounds like a Craigslist job. Kind of. I mean, it was personal referral, but yeah, it was yeah. that type of thing. And doing all three of those things and barely squeaking by with mm -hmm. the rent. And uh, 
shit hits the fan on Wall Street and literally one after the other, like, oh, we're not going to be needing you anymore. Oh, I can't use you this week. Sorry, it's not going to work. Mm. Boom, boom, boom. I got nothing broke. I'm just, end of, end of 2008, I'm just like, I got nothing. Mm. <laughs> so I wound up just kind of moving out of New York with my tail between my legs. Um, and, you know, like I kind of bounced around, like, you know, I spent a little time at my mom's house. Mm. She's always happy to, you know, see me. So, but Sometimes I, you just got to go home. Yeah, know? but, you know, it's like once you're in your 30s, there's some real, like, I have a real problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't, I, I couldn't stay at my mom's house for more than a couple of days. And I went to Bethlehem and started hanging out with Johnny and like, um, and then that's when I met Steve. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be a time when Steve was looking for a bass player. Okay. And I wasn't a bass player yet, uh, but I got the gig to play bass with Steve because of my relationship with Johnny. Um, like we just had chemistry, we had playing chemistry. Right. So he gave us a shot. You know, he totally took us on the road as the rhythm section in the band. So it was like me and Steve and Melvin Seals and Johnny. And um, it was actually, and that was basically the band. It was well, that's a four great piece gig. band. It was an amazing gig. I mean, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Uh, you, you, know? you had no idea. Like, <laughs> I didn't know the <laughs> rules of playing bass. I didn't know, I mean, I barely hold the thing and I didn't know where the notes were on the bass. I mean, it was basically like, you know, I had musical sensibility mm-hmm. and, and Steve was in a spot. So like I showed up and there was an audition taking place I was literally just hanging out. There was a bass player who was supposed to show up to audition and there's keyboardist auditioning as well. And uh, the keyboard guy showed up from New Orleans and the bass player got cold feet and did not show up. Mm. Or for whatever reason, uh, there was an empty chair that day. And Steve's like, well, can you hold it down for a minute here? Here's, you know, this thing has four strings. So does that, check right. it out. And I'm like, totally, you know? <laughs> and. Uh, and totally have a blast, you know, it was super fun. Um, and there was another session that took place with uh, Charnet Moffat came by to play okay. bass. Mm-hmm. And I was playing cello, I got to play cello. So I was, I was dicking around a bunch with Johnny and, and that, that enabled me to sort of hang out at the barn. And I was, you know, I was aware at that point that Steve was, you know, kind of legendary skills on the guitar. Oh, but so, I still, so it finally clicked then when you were going around with him, like, oh. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> I mean, he had been set up for me, but I didn't, um, I still didn't know any of that music. Mm. <clears throat> and then, and then uh, after this jam session, Johnny's uh, like, yeah, you probably just got yourself a gig with my dad. I'm oh, like, that's awesome. I'm like, Really? I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Next thing I know, I get the call. Like, we're going here, 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 and here, and here. Uh, can you do these dates? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so then I spent a year on the road mm-hmm. with Steve and Johnny and Melvin. And I was so bad. Like, I, I mean, I don't know why I got to keep that gig at all for five minutes, because I just dropped the ball every time I turn around, like missing the downbeat not knowing the line and just not having ideas or facility on the instrument like it was um i mean i'm maybe making it out to be worse than it was but i had zero confidence 
and the fans were calling me out too. Like I made the mistake of looking on the online forum. Oh, the yeah. first uh, first couple of months there, we were going all over the place and playing these really big gigs and played these festival dates and then going out to High Sierra and doing these kind of big dates. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm the new guy and bass is totally new for me at that time. So. You know, oh, because yeah, you probably got these diehard uh, Steve Kimmock fans yeah, yeah, yeah. That, are, that are all play bass to his tunes like every day to the recording. Like, oh yeah, I know these lines. Yeah. I know all of them. And then, then you go up there and then like you're not hitting the well, line Well, they're used to hearing to like the these legends. Yeah, They're used to hearing exactly. like Alfonso so, Johnson and Bobby Vega and they're like, who the fuck is yeah, this kid? Yeah, and if they're not hearing that, then they're like, well, who the hell is this guy? Yeah, so it was it was totally a trial by fire. And I realized really quickly that I was in over my head, but I also knew that I had nowhere else to go. So I basically mm -hmm. started practicing like nine hours a day. And Steve was really kind. He took me under his wing. He showed me a bunch of stuff. And uh, I just, I was just really diligent. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, I think, well, you could ask him, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was able to stick around because of the work ethic. Oh yeah. I, I took, I, I got a pretty strong work ethic from from that and then um you know but then we did you know that that tour ended and um at that point johnny and i took off and that's how xvsk really started happening was like johnny and i had some space to do our own thing like mm -hmm. we had spent we'd put in a bunch of miles and a bunch of stage hours uh with the other project so we knew how to make a show we knew how to do a sound we knew how to like be pros mm -hmm. and that really turned us into that outfit oh, um, I see. so you know you really have like steve to thank for giving us like the the, the platform to do what we did um and then we just started taking off as a two-piece and doing the same thing as a two-piece we're not the same thing but doing my tunes doing our you know original stuff mm -hmm. did some of johnny's tunes some of my tunes and some covers and it was just Started looking for an agent, got got a guy to book us, and started driving all over the tarnation. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was all right. We ran ourselves into the ground, mm -hmm. but um, but it was. You know, like we, in, in what sense? Like just like uh, with creativity, or just uh, just marketing, running. Uh, just... Well, neither of us. We're both kind of players more than we are marketers. Okay. You know, so I think we. We just um, we loved playing together, and we loved going to, and doing gigs. So we used the connections we had to go and play at places, and you know I had the mailing list I could use to get a few people out to see us, and we kind of took it from there. Um, but at the end of the day, it was like uh, too many miles for not enough people and not enough dollars, and we just didn't have the the nourishment we needed to keep going. And it was also during that time that I really like stopped writing you know like life was too complicated i was having a hard time surviving and just getting to the next gig and staying fed there was no way i could like write songs in that mindset so i started getting really tired of the material um and so you know at that time we started like powering through and we did make an album and we did make the effort to record what we were doing okay. um and uh you know it was it was definitely a period there where we were really grinding uh, grinding it out um, and yeah I mean we're still in touch we'll, we'll play again for sure oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. how many um, how many albums did you guys end up recording let's see we made the first 
the first set of demos ended up being an EP, which was really only, was kind of thrown together. It was, mm -hmm. it was, it was a few different songs. And then, um, well, it wasn't really an album. And then we did like, we got some live recordings and we okay. put those out uh, and then, and we were kind of cruising with those two, selling those at shows. And then we were, then we said, hey, let's actually make an album. So we made, we made the XVSK album. Mm -hmm while we were touring okay so took us a really long time <laughs> many abortive attempts as well like we we're trying to do it ourselves i got this amazing idea that uh, we were going to record it to four track tape um how'd that go very interestingly i mean it, we did use some of that stuff but the i mean i basically learned from that experience not to try and produce myself or engineer myself <laughs> so no more analog recording no i don't i don't mind doing the analog i just okay. like i don't i'll record any fucking way there is i'm just not going to do it myself i'm going to either play or i'm going to engineer for somebody else okay but i'm not going to do Makes those sense. things at the same time uh, and that was like we just didn't have the opportunity we we had engineering help but not at all the recording sessions. So part of it was recording ourselves. And I recorded a lot of kind of cello parts. I recorded those alone. I can do that. But um, moving forward, it's like that would be the last resort for me to do something like that. I totally prefer to hire a professional to record or you know, rent a studio and go in there. I have no interest in DIY recording. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of stress. Yeah. It's well, a lot it's of like, work too. It just it's, it's uh, almost like underappreciated just how much work goes into that. Well, the people who can do that are the people who are working electronically. Mm. Oh well, there's that too. Yeah. I mean, I for me the playing process is a totally involving physical process, mm -hmm. um, but engineering is more of a mental process and a technical mm -hmm. process, and it, t it totally takes me out of the playing state. There's like a flow state you get into when you're playing. And the more you play, the more you flow. And then if you have to stop and twiddle knobs or plug stuff in or whatever, um, you know, there's a, only a certain amount of that I can do before I'm not playing anymore. Mm. Um, now, I had a, a question for you then with uh, the XVSK album. Um, there was one song that kind of stands out on that one as very dynamic and like emotional type song, um, but with no lyrics, uh, Mother Song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there any kind of anything behind that that was kind of like uh, that was like kind of like creative aspects for that song? Interestingly enough, that song, uh, the recording of that song was was one of the recordings that survived from us doing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of what happened during the process of making that album was we made the versions of the song by ourselves and then decided we were going to ditch that track and then we ended up redoing that song in the studio mm. <clears throat> and we did it at a few different studios but mother's song and i think one or two other songs ended up we ended up using the song using the track that we made ourselves but johnny composed mother's song oh, okay so we used to do that song with steve Oh, really? And before that, he used to do it with his other band, New Madrid Faults. And, um, and then 
I just love that song so much. It's like, hey, let's try and do it. And I had to move it to a different key to play it on cello, but we figured out like the looping way to do it live with just me like laying down with the looper pedal. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of fun with it. And yeah, I mean, it's like that song makes people cry. <laughs> it, it's weird enough that it, yeah. it's like that emotional and there's no, no lyrics to it. A friend of, of mine, of ours, uh, asked asked us to play it at, at their wedding. Mm. I, I ended up doing Mother's Song for my friend Brooke as she went down the aisle. Oh, yeah? That's and, a huge and it, Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, I mean, Johnny should have been there. He couldn't make it that day, but I, I, I held it down just myself. And, uh, yeah, we, we did that at the rehearsal the day before, and everyone was bawling at the rehearsal. Like, it's, <laughs> there's something about that melody that just, like, triggers... You yeah. know, and, and a lot of what Johnny does, I mean, he is a phenomenal talent in so many different ways. Like, I would say more than a drummer, like a more a percussionist in that sense. Where, like, well, I like, mean, definitely a lot of more accents. He's so much more than that. I mean, like he's, he's, he's sick on the drums, mm -hmm. but um, as a composer, like as the, the melodies that, that he hears mm -hmm. and just kind of generates, um, I mean, he all i mean he's if you go listen to his soundcloud page he's got all this other stuff that he does that's just him you know messing around with reason and, and logic and stuff and right and you know his a few years ago his dad gave him you know a lap steel that was kicking around it's like here why don't you, you know, play with this for a while and johnny is like a sick <laughs> yeah, he's not he's not an agile guitar player he doesn't play lines or anything like that but he'll just make one sound on it that happens to break your heart right. <laughs> and you're like whoa where did that come from so like, i don't know i just turned it on and did it like he's got he's got access to some really deep musical stuff that comes mm. out you know very naturally and it's really beautiful to witness and you know he's just like it's he's an incredible musician so um, yeah, he's 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 a giant that kid, and everyone everyone who knows him can see it. And he's you can see a typical young musician who's scrambling to keep up with all of his ideas. He's got so many great ideas, mm -hmm. and he's got a really great work ethic. So, you know, more power to him. Absolutely. So then, uh, kind of bringing it back towards you, then, uh, what do you have currently going on? That's um, Oh, you mentioned before with the wedding band and whatnot. You have like some like regular gigs happening around the city. I'm not gigging. No, I'm writing. Okay. I'm teaching. I'm doing weddings. I'm, I'm not really in the public eye, except for these these cover videos I'm putting out on Facebook. Um, and that's just you know I'm, I'm like I'm, I just needed to come off the road and put too many miles in. I got tired and sick, so I needed to like heal myself, okay. uh, which I've done. So now I'm kind of enjoying not touring. Mm -hmm. But I'm definitely also building like the next phase, and I, I, I don't know what that is. You know, we're just Jill and I are collecting songs. Johnny and I are in touch. I'm doing gigs with uh, a number of different people. Like the, the wedding band is one group, but then I also play with James McBride and there's other musicians I meet. You know, I joined a gospel choir a couple of years ago. Like I'm I'm on the scene now. I, with the, I meet a lot of different people. So when it comes time to make a record or do a thing um there's an array of people i can call for that i have no idea what sounds i'm gonna need on it though of course um it might just be it might just be the solo thing i mean there's part of me that really just likes being the guy who's on the gig 
who can also do solo stuff. Um, it takes a lot of energy to put a band together around my own material. Well, being a band leader is always a lot of stress. Yeah, so it's like I, I can be the band leader, you know, and then I can be the songwriter. But being both of those things at once, I'm, uh, I would have to really psych myself up. Now, I know I'll do it again at some point, but I'm, I'm not in any hurry to do it right now. I'm still, I gotta enjoy life too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Is there anything uh, you wanna kind of cover with some of this stuff? Or? No, man, you no. pretty much. Oh, okay. Well, I covered everything that needs uh, to get covered. Oh, good. Uh, let's see. Um, you wanna like plug anything like you want like about your Facebook page? Kind of people check out the videos. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Trevor Exter. Uh, just Google that name. All that stuff will come up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing, doing a bunch of things I like. I, I, I started uh, working in, in the yoga world this year. Really? They, they, they brought me out to the Wanderlust Festival mm -hmm. to play yoga classes. What um, was that? That was great, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. so I, that was me, like, wanting to do, like, solo orchestration. So I brought the looper pedal and some drum machines mm -hmm. and I synced them all up and start like... It's kind of cool because you can like bring different parts out and sort of compose live. Uh, so I, that was a good vehicle for that rig. Um, I still do some of that. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of right now, I'm just doing a little bit of a lot of different things. Get your hand in every pot, kind of. Kind of, yeah. Just spreading yourself out. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very interesting. Uh, well, no, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you for, for doing this with us. It's, it's my pleasure. Fun. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we can get together again soon, kind of do something like this again, especially if you, when you do start doing like a new album or anything like that, we can kind of like advertise and get this going for you. Sure, yeah. You know, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, I guess that's going to be it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Wake up, roll down the windows and ride because it's alive. For someone to tell you what to do Little brother, make sure you don't choke Just hold your breath when you go under Long nights waiting for it to change I keep it moving, but you wonder Why I won't do it for you Don't
replacements you know now.